Welcome to the podcast of Imago Day Community Eastside Gathering. Join us in this Sunday service as we look to the scriptures, seeking to be transformed into the image of Christ. So y'all, earlier this year, we started the series called The Cruciformed Life. And then if you remember when we got to uh, February, we parked that series and we went into our Saving Justice series. And then last week, Eric came and he picked back up on the series, The Cruciform Life. Um, and, and I believe he did a very, very good job. It was good to hear my brother preach. I listened to it on podcast. Um, and some of y'all don't know, we do have a podcast, a Mago Day podcast. You can look it up as a Mago Day. You can go to the website if you ever are not here and want to hear what the sermon was from that previous week. Um, it's usually up by Tuesday, Wednesday um, on the website or podcast. Um, so now we're back in the Cruciform Life series, um, and also we find ourselves in the season of Lent. Now, I don't want to assume that everyone knows what Lent is, because I grew up, again, in the Black Pentecostal church, and they start talking about Lent, and I'm looking in my pockets like, Lent? Like, <laughs> that's the only Lent I knew about. <clears throat> um, so let, let me just, for those, right, like me, let me talk about Lent for just a second. Um, so Lent is the 46 days before Easter. Some say, well, no, Mike, it's 40 days. Um, I believe it's considered 40 days because some folks don't count the Sundays, um, but it's about 46, it's 46 days uh, between this past Wednesday, which is known as Ash Wednesday, that kicks off this season, and it takes us up to um, Easter. Um, so 46 days when believers um, in Jesus all around the world pause for a season to simply reflect on the life of Jesus, his sacrifice, his journey to the cross, and like so, our own mortality and our own journey. I mean, it's a season of repentance and turning from things. Oftentimes, people will give up or sacrifice um, some things that are a part of their daily lives that missing it would remind them of the sacrifice um, of Jesus. And some people use it as a spiritual discipline um, to depend more and more on the spirit to be their uh, sustenance and to be the kind of their all in all. And when they do miss that thing day by day, they remember that, oh man, it's not what sustains me. It's not what keeps me. It's, it's Jesus. And so um, the goal though is that we would exercise our spiritual disciplines so that we would continue to die to our flesh and to continue to be formed into the image of Christ in the likeness of Christ. So Lent and the cruciform life are nothing apart. It's all about dying to our flesh and living through Jesus Christ. And so today we continue in that same vein, um, but today we're going to talk a little bit about loving our enemy. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, um, let's, talk, let's talk about this a little bit. So first, let's read. Let's read what Jesus has to say in Matthew verse, uh, sorry, chapter 5, verse 43. We're going to read this together. Y'all ready? Y'all ready? Okay, let's go. You have heard that it was said, but I tell you, And sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those, who 
Amen. God's word is blessed. So it seems today when I think about us in relationships that all relationships have pretty much become transactional in nature. The main question we ask ourselves before we commit to a relationship is how will this benefit me? What will I get out of this? I got a witness? Okay. It's, it's, it's the truth anyhow. <laughs> um, and the answer to that question usually allows us to determine how much of ourselves we are willing to devote to this thing, whatever it might be. Now, it's not to say that we don't plan to bring anything of value to the table, but we most often bring that, that chip to the table so that we have something to bargain or barter with in this equation. And I think this is even true about the way that we love. So I'm going to ask, this is a real question. This is not rhetorical. Somebody tell me something that you love. Candy? Why? All right. Who said my kids? Why? Okay. Who else? What else do you love? Huh? Music. Why? Makes me feel alive. Anyone else? Somebody from over here. Okay, hold on. We got two. One. Bread. Yo. Okay. Uh-huh. Why? Yes. We have one back here. Sleep. Ooh, I need some of that right now. Why? Okay, okay. So what we even see in these examples, these are not bad things. They're not bad things to love, and these are not bad reasons to love them. But even our love has a transactional foundation to it because everything that we love is because it first gave us some feeling. It gave us some enjoyment. It gave us something that we responded to it with love or something that we would describe as love. But love is a tricky word because you'll say you love tacos and then you say you'll love your kids. It's like, <laughs> what does this word really mean? But that feeling was required before we were willing to classify the object as something or someone we love. If that's true, then what does Jesus mean when he tells us to love our enemies? Is he telling us to manufacture some scenario where our enemies perform a certain action that will evoke the feeling of love? Because if there are enemies, it's likely they're not doing anything that would produce such a feeling or an emotion. Or is he commanding us to love in a completely different way? A way that is totally outside of what's natural and normal for our culture and our society altogether. A radical and transformational love that puts the gospel of Jesus and the values of the kingdom of God on full display. So there are four types of love, right? There's, there's, there's eros in the Greek. That's the Greek word for sensual or romantic love. You can read in Song of Sol Solomon and see a bunch of that eros love vividly portrayed in, in Song of Solomon. Um, we not, that's all I'm saying about that. Um, 
There's storge. This Greek word describes familial love, the affectional bonds, uh, affectionate bonds that develop naturally between, uh, generally between parents and children and brothers and sisters. And then there's that uh, philia love. It's a type of intimate love, the Bible that most Christians practice toward each other, that, that kind of brotherly, um, powerful, emotional bond seen in friendships. And then there is the agape love. And this is the highest of the four types of loves that we see in the Bible. It expresses God's immeasurable, incomparable love for humankind, for creation. It is the divine love that comes from God. Agape love is perfect. And I think it's interesting that in this conversation about loving your enemies, at the end he says, be perfect like your father is perfect, perfect in this love. It's perfect, it's unconditional, it's sacrificial, it's pure. And Jesus Christ demonstrated this kind of divine love to all of humanity in the way that he lived, in the way that he died. Now, this agape love is far different from the other three, and this is what God is calling us to, especially in regards to our enemies. This type of love is a choice. I got love for my brothers and sisters, but I don't know where it began. I don't know where it started. Excuse me. They are my brothers and sisters, and it it felt pretty natural. Some of us say we fell in love with a romantic person. Some would say, well, I didn't even choose that. Like, we was around each other, and we were hanging out, we dated, and things about this person caused me to feel love. I I love this person. But what are we talking about when we're talking about loving our enemies, where nothing chemically, mentally, psychologically would ever just naturally cause us to go that way toward them? In fact... We feel feelings to the opposite that we kind of have to force ourselves through to even get to a place that we feel like we can express anything that could maybe be mistaken as love toward them. And Jesus tells us this is the love that we should be practicing toward our our enemies. It's love that can't be separated from action. It's love that is intentional. We, we, we literally just read, he said, he said, yeah, you can love those who you like, but doesn't everybody do that? Like what he's calling them to is there is a way that those who follow me will live that will not be the regular way of this system, the regular way of this world. And so if all that we do is all that non-believers do, then what's the point in that? What's, where's the transformation in that? Where's the kingdom of God in that? But he's calling us to a love that the world knows nothing of. The whole world is used to only being loved as this reciprocal thing, this thing that is earned, this thing that they receive because of what they've done. They know not what to do with someone who they know is that they are ill-deserving of their love. Yet this person showers them with grace, favor. 
their time, their attention. This is a radical love. So in a culture that values isolation and segregation and labeling and throwing people away and rejecting those who are different in whatever way, in this culture of you're canceled, you made a mistake, you did something wrong, you posted something I don't like, you're canceled forever, I want you to hope you lose your job, you posted the wrong thing. In this, in this type of culture, what do we do with this command to love our enemies? Well, as people of God, as disciples of Jesus, I pray that we would simply obey. Why? Because as disciples of Jesus, we declare him to not only be our Savior, but to be our Lord. So we relinquish our rights to our own way, and we submit to his will and his way for our lives, for his glory and for our good. So this idea that we get to define what love is, and that we get to define how we express it and who we express it to, that's us kind of being the kings and queens of our own hearts. And I think in this culture where everything is permissible, where the only definition of love that I see so frequent is that you just endorse everything, you challenge nothing, you rebuke nothing, you question nothing, you judge nothing. You just, you want to do it? You, you think it's okay? I affirm. It's good. Whatever you, whatever you want to do is good. But this love is portrayed and attached to Jesus. But you can only really do that if you haven't read the scriptures. Because God is a God of love. But that's not what his love looks like. That's not how his love functions. So I pray that we would obey because it is a part of the way that God is transforming us into his image to love an enemy, to humble ourselves, to actively seek out the good for, sacrifice for an enemy is one of the primary ways that we will be formed into the image and likeness of Jesus Christ. Also, I believe this is the mechanism that will transform the world. At the, at, at the root of hate and prejudice and greed and schisms and isms is fear. And I used to think that hate was the opposite of love. But because of those things, I believe at the, even at the root of hate, there's still fear involved in it. And at the root of what hinders us from moving from hate to love, I think is the fear of being rejected, the fear of being hurt, probably again, the, 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 the feeling of the fear of being vulnerable or exposed, putting ourselves out there. And so I think we are afraid to love. Yet John, 1 John 4.18 says that there is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear. So as fearful 
individuals encounter the agape love from the Father, our fears are driven out. And then that fear is replaced with that agape love, unconditional, sacrificial love that is not conditional, that was not earned, but simply is because God simply is love. So let's bring it, let's bring, let's bring it in closer. How could this type of love transform us as we go into the world by the Spirit of God seeking to see it transformed? Verse 48 says, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. The context here, again, is love. So Jesus is telling us to offer our enemies the same type of love that God offers us. So what would it look like to show agape love to that enemy that was once your friend, right? Once was really your friend and actually hurt you. No debate about it. They actually hurt you. Like actually betrayed you. Literally took the knife out the drawer asked you to turn around, and then stabbed you in the back. Like, no question, they did it. How do you offer that person any type of space, any type of grace? Or that parent who was there physically for you, but never really paid attention to you and didn't really treat you that good growing up? Or that parent from birth who, from the very beginnings, showed no interest in you at all. Or that child that you provided for their whole life and sacrificed things in your life for, and now as an adult, they just show you disrespect and disregard. And so what? Or that coworker or individual who has contrary theological viewpoints or political viewpoint or isn't woke enough or is way too woke, need a nap. Like whomever that person or that people group is that you've deemed it okay to damn and condemn or maybe you've become content with the discord between you. Like what does it look like to extend the love you have received from Christ to them? And the question comes to mind for me, like, do we know that Jesus isn't content with the discord, even though we might be? Do we know that it actually is counterintuitive to the whole mission of Jesus? According to Acts, I'm sorry, according to 2 Corinthians, the fifth chapter, God has chosen us to be his ambassadors for reconciliation. Do we know that? Do we know that in all of the darkness in the world, he has chosen us to be his light? But can you imagine what it would be like if those who you've given your light to, to shine in darkness, go into darkness and, and like put their light out? What use? And I'm not saying you're useless or we're useless. I'm just like there's an intentionality to us being called into the family of God, being the people of God, taking the mission of God 
out into the world, shining the light of Jesus into this dark world. And a part of that mission is being ambassadors for reconciliation. As the world is looking for ways and reasons left and right to divide, we have been called by God to be ambassadors of reconciliation. That's the whole point of everything. God reconciling all things to himself. And he's chosen us to assist him in doing that. He gets no glory, no pleasure from us dehumanizing one another and reducing the identities of others down to whether or not they agree with us on certain viewpoints or issues. God's entire plan of redemption is that the fractured relationships between God and man and man and man and man and human would be reconciled back to the harmony and the perfect unity that it was in its original design. So if that's God's end game, if that's God's heart, then why are we so content with relational friction or strife or discord? Do y'all know what discord sounds like to God? I'm going to show you real quick. Hold on. I, I don't get to play the piano as much as I used to since Steve came and stole my spot. But <laughs> what song was we singing earlier? Give me a song we were singing. Yeah. How great. Sing that. Is our God. Is our God sing it in how great is our God? Woo! There's some chords right there. No, no, listen, that's discord. That God don't want to hear that. Now let's sing it again. How great. Is our God sing with me? How great is our God? All will see how great, how great is our God. Now I just want to play. Okay, y'all get the point? <laughs> <laughs> So with this world in example A, God wants to see it in example B. What are the agents moving those fingers to the proper keys? Because all the discord was was I was playing the wrong notes. So who's going to rectify that? Well, the spirit... Is, 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 is the chief musician who, can, who comes to all of us to say, like, no, this is the fingering. This is the position of your hand. This is the structure of the chord. This is the progression of the song. And his goal is to bring disunity, discord into unity. But I don't want to put it on the spirit because he's desiring to do it through us. We'll sit here and think, well, I'll just wait for him to come and work it out. 
while we sit proud and refuse to humble ourselves to obey and walk toward that reconciliation. You got people on this side and this side and you're the neutral party, but you won't even bring them together. You won't speak truth to this side or to that side in fear. Again, this fear. But the perfect love is to be pursuing the unity of these relationships. Listen, I'm not saying that every relationship will go back to what it originally was, but that's my heart. A lot of times we say that's impossible because we've seen so much ugly. But don't you know how deep the pain, how ugly the situation, the more glorious the, God is in the situation when he brings it back to right standing? The world is already skeptical. The world already doesn't believe. We can't take on that same mentality, y'all. There's nothing too hard for God. And I believe that we as a church, if I'm honest, are failing at an incredible opportunity to show this kind of transforming love. We've gotten too cozy with the ways and the customs and the values of this world, and we've settled for this passive-aggressive tolerance nonsense. God has not called us to tolerance. God has not called us to safe and neat and convenient, meaningless words and platitudes. God has not called us to reserve our agape love to those whom we feel deserve it. He has called us to love like he loves. Yes, even like he loves you and me right now. That's the beautiful part of this whole thing is Jesus is not a hypocrite. He didn't just tell us to love this way. He actually modeled it, this perfect love. He modeled it for his enemies. And I'm talking about us. Let's read together Romans 5, verses 6 through 8. You ready? Here we go. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely... Mm-hmm. In what? While we were what? While we were what? Okay. Hallelujah. So what did it cost for us to be reconciled to God? If we could attach, attach a, a dollar amount to it, what would you imagine is the cost to pay for the sins of the world? Whatever the cost was, we can be assured that it was a debt. 
that was owed to God. So how did that debt get paid? God, through Christ, paid the debt. How can and why would the one who is owed pay to satisfy their own debt? Because I can't afford it. <laughs> because absorbing a debt owed to you is the ultimate way to begin with loving your enemies. It's simply called forgiveness. Because if they're your enemy, it's safe to say that they've done something to offend you. Something to hurt you, something to betray you, misused you, maybe even abused you. And I'm not making light of any of it. I'm not saying it's easy, but it's the way in which God will transform you and God will transform them. Because how do you respond to someone who for no reason at all tells you, I forgive you. I don't hold this over your head anymore. Though I'm the one wronged, I will do the hard work of dealing with and processing this pain, this suffering, this offense, but I don't seek revenge against you any longer. I forgive you. And then going a step further and actually blessing them. In that passage, Jesus says, praying for those who persecute you. Praying for their success, that they would prosper, that they would be well. Y'all, this is not what Portland calls us to. This is not what America calls us to. This is not what the culture is encouraging us into. And the reality is you're either the disciple of Jesus or you're the disciple of something else, someone else. And I know there's, we can't know everything, but there's so much that has been made clear by God in the scriptures. Everything ain't foggy. Some stuff we just don't want to obey. But it's hard. I'm not, again, I'm not making light. It's hard. But that's the point. Praying that they would prosper, praying that they would even encounter Jesus, that they themselves would encounter perfect love that casts out our fear and praying that by the Spirit, their fear would be cast out so they can truly love in God's love for us so that we could be reconciled to him God absorbed our debt the one that we owed absorbed our debt and guys we have to do the same there is a cost but we cover it and some of you's like man look I can't Mike like you don't know you don't know the pain you don't know how much you don't and it's crazy, I was just talking in the back, Heidi asked us what we learned in February, and I was talking about sufficient grace. That's what I'm learning about right now. That's what I'm kind of being forced to experience, live into in this moment. And what's funny is that when you needed grace for the little thing, God provided it. And when you needed grace for the big thing, God provided it because God's not short on resources. 
There's no limited supply of grace. And as much as we are willing to ask him, as much as we are willing to dive into that would require us to use it, there's no situation that he won't give us the grace for. And the beauty is he gives sufficient grace. And I think that's what's been blowing my mind because he's not even wasteful with it. It's not that he gives you 20 ounces where you need five. No, he gives you sufficient grace for each thing that you need. Some relationships need a 5% healing, but some need a 75% healing. And he will provide grace for both. I think the greater issue is that we won't even ask him for it. What if we who call on the name of the Lord live this way, not in fear of what we lose, but by faith in what we gain in the kingdom, not in fear of how much we might be hurt again, but in step with our master who has called down blessings and forgiveness on the very men as they were murdering him on the cross. Now, if we bought into this false idea that God's whole purpose for us on this earth is to fulfill our own desires and live for our own pleasures, this will seem totally contrary to what's been deemed the path and the route that God has for us. But if his word is true, and it is, and God is using all things to reconcile all things to himself for the praise of his glorious name, then how will we respond? I pray that we would respond in obedience. And I believe that's the greatest act of worship. Singing is great. But I pray we would respond in obedience as a continual act of worship. I pray that we would trust in Jesus and love our enemies. I pray that this week we might all make some phone calls to some people that we know there's some discord there. That ugly song is in between us. I pray that even as we respond in worship and prayer, that you might sit in your seat and start crafting a text to somebody. The first step might just be unblocking somebody from Facebook. <laughs> Y'all know. Or unhiding them or whatever we do now. Snapchat, whatever. Whatever you want. And, and, and don't just open the door for reconciliation because, again, our fears will creep in. Well, even when we make the first step, it'll, it'll kind of be this defense mechanism like, hold on now. Now, I ain't about to look soft. I don't want them to feel like I'm giving in. I don't want them to feel like they were right. You know how meaningless? Come on, man. So don't just open the door. You be the first to walk through it. No fear. You might seem weak, you might look weak, but in Christ you have strength. Get okay looking weak, being weak. That's where his strength kicks in.
you're strong like my son, Mike Jr., thinks he's strong. <laughs> Till I tell him to pick up the gallon of milk. He want to be so helpful. I got all these groceries. And I just asked him to carry the milk. And I got to figure out another finger to put the milk on. Christ will give you the strength. Don't worry about what it will look like to obey Jesus. Just obey him. Just trust him. He's got you. And this may feel like a death, but it's a death that brings life. It's a death to our pride. It's a death to our throne, our reign, our rule, to what we think are our lives. But my prayer is that we would choose to die, that Christ might live through us. And that's where we're at, even again in this season of Lent, it, it's considering the life of Jesus and thinking about how we might live differently. And we believers ought to be the first partakers in this type of being. I see it in the culture, actually. If I think about it, that's, I, I didn't think, okay. Um, anybody know who Nipsey Hussle is? Okay. He died, has it been a year now? Was it May last year, maybe? And it, as soon as he died, and even till today, people hashtag what in response to his life? The marathon continues because he had this brand and this thing about the marathon, and with it had a work ethic, had a mindset, had a this is how you think about things. He's a rapper, but he was doing things um, that wasn't, you know, the most popular in rap culture and the businesses that he owned and the way he was trying to help his community and the different things that he was doing, and he would all do it in the name of the marathon, and that's how he looked at life. It's a marathon. And, and everyone now is, uh, you know, starting up small businesses and, and, and doing things that um, are, you know, a progression in their lives. And they'll hashtag the marathon continues. In light of his life, they're considering, like, how should I be living? And then, of course, the Black Mamba, right? Kobe Bryant just died. And then we see all these hashtags of girl dad and black mamba and mamba mentality. So people are taking this life, it's only happening in consideration of their death, but now it's causing them to think about how should I be living? People are making commitments to spend more time with their daughters or their kids or to put more time in the places that they matter because this death has caused me to rethink some things about life. Love Nip, love Kobe. We're talking about Jesus, the Christ, son of the living God. In light of his life, all that he has said, all that he has done, all that he has commanded, all that he has promised, how will we look at our lives and order them around his That is the call to us. I pray that we would respond. Let's pray.
Dear God, you are a God of abundance and you give us grace, sufficient grace. God, you have called us to be ambassadors of reconciliation. But sometimes we don't want things reconciled. So, God, we need heart transformation. We need our hearts to desire the things that you desire. We need our eyes to see the things that you see. We need you to give us vision for what you desire to be. And God, I pray that we would be open to your spirits, nudging the inclinations, and that we would follow and obey as you lead us into this life of pursuing reconciliation. God, I pray that we would know that because we are accepted by you, we are forgiven by you, we have nothing to fear. So we can put our heart out there. We can risk being rejected. But we can know that we've been faithful to obey you and helping this world be what you desire for it to be. So God, today, we step off of our thrones and we crown you king. And as folks even maybe come to us seeking reconciliation, God, give us a heart to not hold over them their wrongs. But God, give us the grace to forgive May we take advantage of the resources there are to seek healing. God, may we be the salt of the earth, the light of the world. May our being here make a difference in this world. We love you. We praise your name forever. Amen. We pray that God will use this message to strengthen your faith and draw you into a deeper relationship with himself. If you're interested in hearing other sermons or want more information about the church, please visit our website at idceastside.com. Thanks for listening.